Well, if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, if you could go ahead and turn them to Ezra 7, Ezra chapter 7, that'd be great for the sake of our guests. My name is Chris Patton. I have the joy of serving alongside of my friend Jeremy as one of the pastors here at Grace, and I just want to add my welcome to his. Uh, we are delighted that you are here with us. And uh, as Jeremy said, we do pray that God, by his Holy Spirit, would minister to you in a wonderful way today. Well, today we continue our series, which we began last week, where we are going through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We are going through these books uh, together in one preaching series, as they both have to do with the return of the exiled people of God from Babylon first rebuild the temple, and then to rebuild the city wall. So Ezra, the book of Ezra is about the rebuilding the temple and the restoration of proper worship in the city of God in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is about the rebuilding of the walls, representing a return to national stability, security, uh, and prosperity. Our sermon text this morning is the last few chapters of the book of Ezra. You'll recall from last week that Jeremy covered chapters 1 to 6 in this book. Today I will cover chapters 7 to 10, which takes us all the way to the end of the book. And then Jeremy will kick things off next week in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, By way of reminder and just to get our bearings here, you'll recall from last week... After decades of exile in Babylon, in chapters 1 to 6, the, re- the first wave of exiles returned back to Jerusalem. And under the excellent leadership of Zerubbabel and encouraged by the prophets Zechariah and Haggai, the returned exiles overcame a great deal of opposition And they successfully rebuilt the temple. That was last week's sermon, and it was chapters 1 to 6. Chapter 7, which marks the beginning of our text today, is a key transition point in the book. Chronologically, there's a significant time gap between chapters 5 and 6 of about roughly 60 years. By the way, many believe that it was in this this gap... um, excuse me, in between 6 and 7. Many believe that it was in this gap that Ahasuerus, the Persian emperor, um, that he was ruling. So he was the emperor that Esther was married to. So people think, many scholars believe that in between chapters 6 and 7, he was the one who was ruling. So as chapter 7 begins, uh, we need to realize about 60 years had passed Since the events of chapter 6, when the people wonderfully and gloriously celebrated the rebuilding of the temple. So, you're in Ezra chapter 7. For the sake of time here at the outset, we will only read the first 10 verses of chapter 7. And then we'll stop there, and then I'll read other portions of our passage as we go along. So, we're in Ezra 7. These are the words of God. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzai, son of Bukai, son of Abishu, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked. For the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. 
And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for your holy word. Thank you for how your word leads us, guides us, and trains us in righteousness. So now, Heavenly Father, we ask you in these moments to re-speak your word, re-speak the truth of your word to our hearts. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit. By your Holy Spirit, illuminate your word to our hearts and teach us what it means to live in keeping with your word, avoiding all that would compromise the holiness and purity that you call us to as your people. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus and everyone said together, Amen. (laughs) Amen. One temptation common to every generation of God's people is the temptation to compromise. In every era... In every era, the world's influence threatens in various ways to corrupt the purity, the holiness, the set-apartness that God says must mark and define His church. Since the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, the world has always enticed followers of Yahweh God with sensual and material pleasures of all sorts. And there have always been those in every era, including ours, who have been willing to take the bait. They take the bait the world offers, material prosperity, sensual pleasure, and while some repent, others do not, and the consequence is that the purity and the witness of the church is badly compromised. The scriptures are clear, dear brothers and sisters, I know you know this, while God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He also does not tolerate moral and spiritual compromise on the part of his people. He doesn't tolerate it. Meaning he doesn't just let it go. You'll recall from last week that the very reason the people of Israel were exiled in the first place is that they had given themselves over to the idolatry and sins of the pagan nations that Surrounded them. So what happened? Well, you know the story. God disciplined them in love by sending them into exile. Jeremy gave some of that background last week. Sadly, in the latter chapters of our text today, chapters 9 and 10, we see that apparently the returned exiles had not learned their lesson. They had not sufficiently learned from the failures of prior generations. Instead, they had begun to emulate the error of the prior generations. They had begun to emulate the compromise that their forefathers modeled by joining themselves through marriage with the unconverted pagan peoples of the land. In response, um, God moved. This wasn't okay with the Lord. In response, God raised up and sent his people in Jerusalem a devoted scribe named Ezra. God raised up Ezra to preach the word, 
to apply the word and to cause this compromise uh, among the people of God to cease. Through this story, through Exodus 7 to 10, we learn this very important lesson. We learn the lesson that God's word proclaimed through God's servants is a divine means of grace to root out spiritual compromise. I think that's the main lesson of these chapters. God's word proclaimed through God's servants is a divine means of grace to root out spiritual compromise. And as we go along, I trust you will see how the text itself bears this lesson out. So let us now consider a survey of the text. At the beginning of chapter 7, and you might just keep your Bible open. I'll reference different portions, chapter 7 to 10, as we go along here. At the beginning of chapter 7, the author introduces us to a man named Ezra. Ezra was verse 6. You can look there. A scribe skilled in the law of Moses. That the Lord... That is Yahweh, the God of Israel, had given. Three times in chapter 7, verses 6, verse 6, 7, verse 28, the author states that the hand of Yahweh, the hand of the Lord, was upon Ezra for this tax. So in chapter 7, this Jewish scribe, Ezra, came before Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and he made a number of requests. Now, while we don't know the exact content of Ezra's request, that's not recorded here, verses 11 to 26 do contain the king's response to Ezra's request in a letter that Artaxerxes wrote to Ezra. And in this letter, King Artaxerxes approved a second wave of exiles to return with Ezra to Jerusalem. So last week, we read about the first wave of exiles that returned to Jerusalem. And this week, we're looking at the the second wave of exiles to return with Ezra. So King Artaxerxes, he in this, writes this letter, he proves this. Uh, second wave of exiles to return. He also commissioned Ezra to oversee the delivery of a substantial offering that the king himself and his associates had given in order to purchase animal sacrifices and to beautify the temple. Artaxerxes said essentially in verse 20, and this is my summary, uh, you've got a blank check Ezra, this really is remarkable. You've got a blank check to do whatever you need to do to seek to restore the temple to its former glory under Solomon. So you have a blank check, and if the money I've given you isn't enough, well, take whatever you need out of the king's treasury to cover the cost of whatever is needed. Remarkable. And we saw this last week, how God is moving upon pagan kings to donate to the cause of uh, the advance of God's kingdom. Artaxerxes said in verse 23, whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven. Then in verse 25, King Artaxerxes instructed Ezra, Uh, to put in place when he returned civil magistrates and judges who would make judgments in keeping with the law of God. So go back there, Ezra, and, and make sure the law of God is being taught and applied. In verse 26, the king commanded Ezra to teach God's law, God's word, and to punish those who refuse to obey God's law. Verse 27 then records Ezra's response to this letter, which is nothing less than praise to God for putting it on the king's heart 
to do this. As I just mentioned, this really is staggering. We shouldn't miss this. This is a move of God upon the heart of the king. Similar to last week's text, here's yet another pagan ruler after Cyrus, after Darius, funding the work of God. How many of you know the work of the Lord is always, in every generation, unstoppable? God, by the Holy Spirit, can move upon even pagan kings to work for the advance of the gospel and the cause of Christ. That was true in the Old Testament. That was true in our story. It's no less true today. May we pray for kings and all who are in power that the Lord would move upon their hearts, turn their hearts to the Lord, and that they would make laws in keeping with the word of the Lord. So that's chapter 7. That brings us to chapter 8, which starts off with a genealogy of those who were part of this second wave of exiles. In verses 14 to 20, just moving along, Ezra realizes there were no Levites who had joined the group, which meant no pastors, no one from this wave of exiles to minister full-time in the temple. That was the job of the Levites, you'll recall, from the Pentateuch earlier in the Old Testament. So he recruited more Levites to go. Then in verses 21 to 23, Ezra led in a time of prayer and fasting for the journey. This was a scary journey. The exiles were taking a ton of gold and valuable goods to Jerusalem so they would be easy targets to be ambushed and attacked. There were women and children on this journey. So you can imagine the fear that Ezra would have felt and the others with him as they made their way, the long trek from Babylon to Jerusalem. So what did Ezra do? He led the people to fast and pray. And wonderfully, God answered their prayer and they made it to Jerusalem safely. Verses 21 to 23. Really, a whole sermon could be given on that. Serve as a clarion call to faith-filled prayer. Remember, Jesus said, Ask and it it will be given to you. Seeking you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks. It will be opened. While God does not always answer prayer in the way we hope, or expect, all of Scripture is clear. Our God does delight to answer our faith-filled prayers. So may we be a people, even as Jeremy talked about moments ago during the announcements, who aren't, don't have a cynical attitude about prayer, but instead have childlike faith that comes before the God of the universe our Heavenly Father in every circumstance and ask for God to move, ask for God to lead, ask for God to protect, ask ask Him to give us our daily bread because that's the kind of God He is. He delights to answer those prayers and we see that uh, in verses 21 to 23. So that brings us to chapter 9. Brings us to chapter 9. When Ezra and company arrived in Jerusalem, Ezra, who, again, I just remind you, he had been sent for the very purpose of proclaiming the law of God, the word of God, and enforcing the law of God. Uh, In chapter 9, right there at the beginning, he was soon notified of a serious violation of God's law that had taken place. We read about this violation in verses 1 to 2, where we are told, you can look there, that the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites had not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands uh, with their abominations. Instead, the leaders, the priests, the Levites, and the people, they and their they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods if they intermarried. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you. So God had commanded his people not to do this, and here they are doing this. 
To be clear, the problem Ezra identified wasn't intermarriage with people of other ethnicities. Keep in mind, Rahab, Ruth, Zipporah, who was Moses' wife, were all uh, essentially Gentile converts who married into the family of God, which is something that God clearly allowed. For more on that, you can read Deuteronomy 21, verses 10 to 14. So, the problem here wasn't interracial marriage. Instead, the problem was, this is very important for us to get our minds around and grasp, the problem was disobedience. It was spiritual compromise, which I was talking about at the outset of the sermon. The problem was the idolatry and apostasy that intermarriage produced in that generation and in successive generations as children and grandchildren were born to these unions. So upon hearing this news, um, we see in verse 3, Ezra tore his garment and his cloak. He fasted and prayed, and then he leads in a prayer of confession and repentance. And in this prayer, if you read it, and we will a little bit later read some of it, you see that Ezra not only prays, he preaches through prayer. (laughs) Pastors sometimes do that. (laughs) It's a lengthy prayer. He's praying. But he's not just praying, he's preaching, he's instructing, and he's modeling the the repentance that he wants the people to walk in. Then in chapter 10, those men who committed this sin, who married these pagan women, confess their sin to the Lord. But they not only confessed their sin, they also repented of it. They repented of it by divorcing their pagan wives. Now, there is understandably... Uh, No small amount of debate and discussion about the validity of what happened here. Chapters 9 and 10 are a little bit confusing and they raise a number of questions. The main question is, was this right and good and lawful what these men did by divorcing these pagan women or uh, or was this an example of sinful and overzealous repentance? So was this good or was this sinful, uh, extreme zeal gone bad? Here's my take. Person- and this isn't the only take on this, so I'll just say that. There are uh, several legitimate interpretations of this passage, but they can't all be right. And I was assigned to preach this passage this morning, so I'm going to give you my take on it. Personally, I learn, I lean towards the interpretation that says what happened here was actually lawful, that these were biblical divorces, meaning adultery, likely unrepentant adultery, was involved. I say this because chapter 9, verse 1, and chapter 9, verse 14 strongly indicate that these women were involved in the abominations of the land. That was the problem with intermarriage in the first place. It wasn't that these women, these women weren't godly. They were people of the land. And the text seems to clearly indicate, from my perspective, that they were involved in the abominations of the land. And the abominations of the land, we know from other scriptures, as part of religious rituals and practices, um, these abominations included sexual immorality and impurity. Furthermore, chapter 10, verse 3, shows that these men who were repenting, they they were seeking to obey God's law in divorcing their wives. And Ezra himself, an expert in the law of God, a man who had set himself to understand and apply the law of God, seems to condone the resolution to divorce these women that we see in chapter 10, verse 5. So there is no hint. If you read the text, and from my perspective, there's no hint in the passage itself that God disapproved of this resolution. And I find that 
persuasive. So again, again, I think these, th- this was an extremely grievous, sad, and messy situation, which the sin of these Israelite men um, had created. So divorce is always, it is always tragic, yet in this case, it seems that it was the wisest and most God-honoring of the available, uh, the available options. Um, it's sad because we see that the text says that children were involved, and it's not exactly clear. The text doesn't tell us what happened to them, though I think it's safe to assume that provision and care was made for these children by these men who were, because again, they were, their, their desire was to walk according to God's law, and they were seeking to repent from having not done that. So I think that is what's happening here. All right, so we've considered um, an overview of chapters 7 to 10. Um, There are now just two key lessons that I want to draw out from it today for us. Um, So the first is pastoral ministry matters. Pastoral ministry matters. While the ministry of Ezra is not exactly analogous to the New Testament pastor. If you read and study these chapters, you'll notice there are definite parallels between the ministry of Ezra in the Old Testament and the ministry of pastors in the New Testament. Um, Ezra, you may have noted, unlike Zerubbabel and Zechariah, who we were introduced to earlier in the book, uh, Ezra Unlike them, he was not a prophet. Instead, he was a scribe who had set his heart to study and to know the law of God, the word of God. You see in chapter 7, verse 10, that, I, I get that right from chapter 7, verse 10. He set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do, or as the uh, Legacy Standard Bible says, or practice it. So he set his heart to study the law and to do or practice the law and teach its statutes and rules in Israel. So in contrast with the Old Testament prophet who spoke the very words of God, given by direct revelation from God, Ezra's job description was to preach prior revelation. His job description was to preach revelation that had been spoken already. Ezra, as a committed scribe and teacher, he was committed to exegete, unpack, explain, preach, and apply the law of God as given to Moses. So this man, he traveled the long distance from Babylon to Jerusalem with this singular mission in mind, to shepherd the people in the ways of the Lord. That's why he went, to lead them. And to protect them from the harmful effects of sinful compromise with the surrounding culture. That is why he went. He was a man on a mission. Not only that, but Ezra was wholeheartedly committed as well to do and to practice the law of the Lord. That means this is a man who is committed not only to teach the word, but to practice the word. To live it out, to obey it himself. And in both Ezra and Nehemiah, we see Ezra faithfully doing this, faithfully preaching against spiritual compromise and faithfully living out the word of God. This isn't the only time we'll see Ezra. We're going to see him again in Nehemiah. And I have to tell you, in reading this, it does seem clear to me that Ezra's commitments, Ezra's commitments are the same commitments that every pastor should have as well. The Apostle Paul exhorts Timothy to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. He also tells Timothy, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So biblically, the job description of the pastor is, I think you can see, it's very Ezra-like. The job description of the pastor 
is to both preach the word and to live the word out, to practice the word. So we don't do this perfectly, obviously, pastors don't, but that is the call of God on us. And a healthy biblical ecclesiology, ecclesiology, that's just a term that means doctrine of the church. A healthy biblical ecclesiology or doctrine of the church, it emphasizes that this is what pastors are called to do. And I mentioned this this morning as we're looking at this text uh, because in evangelical church culture in our day, um, unbiblical notions of what a pastor should be and of what a pastor should do, um, they really abound. Um, it's my observation that, and not just mine, others as well, other leaders that I respect, that evangelical church culture as a whole doesn't really grasp what the job description of a pastor is. Pastor as therapist, pastor as church growth expert, pastor's my best friend, pastor as CEO, <laughs> and other similar ideas, they easily and inadvertently take root in local church communities. I do think it's unintentional. The sad reality is when pastors and congregations embrace such notion, notions, excuse me, when pastors and congregations embrace such notions, the result is pastors then strive to meet unbiblical expectations. And consequently, they neglect their primary biblical call. And sadly, what happens when, what happens when pastors neglect their biblical call? The church suffers. To put this simply, a biblically informed church member is someone who reads the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and they say, I want a pastor or I want pastors who emulate Ezra. I want pastors who faithfully minister the word. That's what we're looking for pastors to do. I want a pastor who faithfully ministers the word of God to my soul who calls me to holiness and helps me and others to avoid sinful compromise. The positive side of this equation is that when pastors do fulfill their call to proclaim God's word and the people respond with humility and joy and with repentance as necessary, well then that is a healthy church and that brings great glory to God and is a powerful witness to the world around us. A healthy church, brothers and sisters, is a place where people gather around the Word on the Lord's Day, every Lord's Day, eager to hear, <laughs> eager to apply, eager to obey, eager to repent where necessary. And that's where I want to thank you, Grace Community Church, on behalf of our team for being this kind of church, this kind of congregation. You do come here on Sunday mornings eager to hear not a mere message or talk or to be entertained or to hear good stories, but you come to this church on Sunday morning, week after week, to hear the living God speak to you, to challenge you, to encourage you, to correct you. You come here for an encounter with the living God through his word. And it is a blessing for us. It is a blessing for us to pastor you, to pastor people like that. So thanks for being this kind of church. I also want to encourage you to excel still more in valuing, in valuing the ministry of the word through your pastors. And one way we can do this is by, I think, being on time. We regularly need reminders about this. So <laughs> I remind you, uh, we have one church service that starts at 10 a.m. I remember a visiting pastor came here one time and he said, hey, I see you're very much like my church. You have a 10 a.m. service and you have a 10.15 service. So I just want to remind everybody this morning, we have a 10 a.m. service. And so one of the ways we show respect for the Word of God and what takes place here is by being here on time. Hearts 
ready and warned to first worship and sing praises and then to hear the living God speak to us. Another way that I think we can just excel um, in valuing the preached word is um, by continuing to come and attend a care group. A primary purpose, as many of you know, I'm just reminding you, of care group is the application of God's word preached on Sunday. Care group is a very, we don't have a lot of programs here at our church, but we have a few. Care group is about the application of this. What did we hear on Sunday? And then James says, don't be, here, don't be hearers only of the word, but be doers. So we have care group to help us to sit before the word again as brothers and sisters in the Lord and to apply what we have heard. Every Tuesday morning, I produce a sermon recap with discussion questions that I post online for our care group leaders to use, uh, but they're for you as well. So on Tuesday, if you want to just get a head start on the discussion for your care group meeting, I'd encourage you, go on the church website. It's where the sermons are. Go to the bottom, recaps. Click on that. Pray through some of those questions before you come and come ready to engage with your brothers and sisters, to hear from God again as you talk about the Word of God and the Word of God preached on Sunday. And again, it really is a privilege to to live the Christian life out with you and to be among a people who are hungry for this. And you do a great job with this. Uh, Reminder, if you're not coming to care, you want to get there. And we're not trying to say this as some sort of legalistic requirement, but we all need the word and the fellowship of brothers and sisters. So I want to encourage you to get there. Uh, I was at the, Phoebe and I were at the Beckley Care Group this last week. Um, Seth Beckley is a, and his wife, awesome care group leaders. And really all of our care group leaders here, you are amazing the way you care for the people in your care groups. And, um, I just want to say on behalf of everyone here to our care group leaders, thank you for the way that you serve all of us. You're a blessing. Yes, you can clap. And so uh, let this just be a small exhortation to let's be encouraged about what happens on Sunday. Let's be encouraged about what happens at care group and come with hungry, hungry hearts to receive from the Lord. All right. So lesson number one was um, pastoral ministry matters as biblically defined. Um, and then lesson two is that repentance matters. Repentance matters. In chapter nine, upon hearing the news of the unfaithfulness of the people in this matter of intermarriage, we saw that Ezra's heart was just filled with grief and sorrow. In chapter 9, verse 3, you can glance down there. He says, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. He didn't even commit these sins, but he's just so grieved by what he sees. Then in the hearing of many, he prayed a prayer of deep sorrow and lament. And as I mentioned moments ago, in his prayer, he not only prays, he instructs. He teaches the people what a heartfelt, repentant response to the Lord when you've sinned looks like. And I just want to read part of that prayer to you. So Ezra 9, um, look down at your scriptures in verse 10. And I'm going to read to the end of 15. And this is Ezra's prayer. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from the end to end with their uncleanliness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities have deserved. Note how... 
Ezra is noting the grace of God. You've punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such a remnant as this. Shall we break your commandments again? You see his brokenheartedness? Like, we're doing this again? Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice? Note again, these abominations who practice, intermarry with the people who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us? That would be right. We deserve hell, right, brothers and sisters? We have not received according to what our sins have deserved. Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us? So that there should be no remnant nor any to escape. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. So that's Ezra praying a prayer of confession. He's also, again, trying to lead the people in a spirit of repentance, showing them what they need to do. Following this prayer, Shechaniah, perhaps one of the men who had sinned by marrying a pagan woman, laments in chapter 10, verse 2, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Note, that is exactly what spiritual compromise is. Okay? That is exactly what compromising with sin is. It is breaking faith with the Lord. By marrying these unconverted, pagan, idol-worshiping women, these men, these men were welcoming the world, hostile to God, right into their homes. It's compromise. They were doing exactly what Solomon did in marrying uh, how many, I, I can't remember, how many hundreds of foreign women. And how did that go for Solomon? It, it didn't go too well, did it, for him? Solomon walked away from the Lord. He led the people of Israel into idol worship. Eventually, the kingdom was split in two. The northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians, totally idolatrous people in the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom hung on for a little bit longer. And then what happens? Babylon comes. The Babylonian Empire comes. The city is crushed. The walls are torn down. The temple is destroyed. How did it go for Solomon, his marrying of the foreign women? Not too well. And that's because syncretism never works. It never works. That is, blending faith in the one true God with idolatry never works. <laughs> the people, from every people of God from every generation have tried it, and it never works. Syncretism never works, compromise never works because it ruins the purity and testimony and witness of the people of God, which the world loves, but God is not okay with it. God is not okay with it. The world constantly wants to bait the church into compromise so that they don't have to deal with the conviction that comes from seeing a holy people. Do you realize that? Darkness loves darkness. Darkness doesn't want the light. So what is the dark world around us, the pagan world around us that is hostile to God want with regards to the church? The world hostile to God wants us to be like them. Because when the world around us looks in and they see purity and holiness and righteousness among the people of God, well, that's convicting. And that says something's wrong with them. And they need to repent of their sins and turn to the living God. So the, the world is trying constantly to bait the church into compromise. And God, mainly through the preaching of the Word, through Ezra in our text, through pastors 
in the New Testament era, God, through the preaching of His Word, is constantly seeking to keep the people of God from such witness-destroying compromise. In welcoming pagan women into their homes, the men in our story welcome the world, its idols, its values, right into their homes. And in so doing, they broke faith with the Lord. But they're not alone. We also break faith with the Lord in smaller ways. We too break faith with the Lord anytime we welcome the culture's idols and values into our homes. To break faith with the Lord, to compromise, is to say, I want Christ. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I want Christ. I want to live for him, but then privately in our homes. Go to a website. Pull something up on the phone. Put something on the TV screen. Or, or engage in some other activity that says, Sin and Satan, you're most welcome in my home. Come anytime. Um, doing things, having that kind of double standard, I want Christ, but then engaging in various activities that really welcome the, honestly welcome the influence of the devil into our homes, that is and tempt us to sin, that's breaking faith with the Lord. In response to breaking faith with the Lord, on behalf of those who had sinned in this way, Shechaniah confessed the sin of intermarriage. The people then repented from their sin and turned from it by separating from these foreign women. And what I want to point out here is, is this, and this is true, Whatever your take is on this particular passage, however you you interpret this (laughs) section with the divorce and putting away of the women, however you interpret it, there is a key biblical principle that all of us can take home here. And that is when the word of God is proclaimed and we are convicted of sin and compromise with the world, the proper response is mourning for sin and then repenting from it and turning from it. That's the proper response. And that's something we can all take home from chapter 7 to 10 this morning. It is right and good for us to mourn deeply when we sin, that we have sinned against the almighty God of the universe. As Ezra declared in his prayer, God has been good. He has been gracious to us. He has given his only son to die for our sins. And yet when we sin, when we violate the law of God, when we compromise, the truth is, if we're being honest and we're calling it what it is, we break faith with him. That's what sin is. We're breaking faith with the Lord. That helps me. That descriptor in the text. To take sin more seriously. When we compromise, we break faith with him, we disobey him, we disregard God's laws and commands. And so it's right for us when we sin, to mourn our sin and then to move towards the gospel. Thank God there is a healing remedy for sin. And that is the gospel. It's Jesus Christ, who He is, what He's done. Praise the Lord that on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath and judgment I deserve for my sins so that I don't have to. So it's right and good for us to mourn our sin than to go to the cross and receive God's forgiveness and his cleansing for our sin. And then there is one more step here. There is one more step. It's huge, critically important. Following the pattern of the passage, we must deal radically with our sin. We must forsake it. We must put it away. Jesus captures the attitude we ought to demonstrate by means of a metaphor. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. So I ask you today, and the band can join me on stage, what sin, small or great, Is God calling you to mourn, flee to the cross with, 
and deal radically with today? In what ways, small or great, have you broken faith with your God recently? And perhaps you're not convicted of anything. And if, if that's you, I'm not trying to project false guilt. Okay? No false guilt allowed. Genuine conviction from the Holy Spirit, welcome. Holy Spirit, come. <laughs> if you are convicted, I urge you, on the authority of God's word, hopefully in an Ezra-like way today, <laughs> to come to God today, like these men in this passage. Here's how I want to encourage you. First, flee to the cross. You have a Savior. You don't need to hide from whatever it is, whatever sin, small or great. Flee to the cross. Confess your sin before the Lord. And just receive the cleansing of the blood of Christ over your soul. If you're convicted, flee to the cross, receive God's forgiveness, and then seek to repent. God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, desires to help you. He desires to help people in every area, his people. He loves us, and he wants to help us to live for him and to be together as a church, a shining, bright light to this lost world that many people might come to know the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word today. Lord, your word is mighty, it's powerful. Lord, where we have sinned, we do grieve our sin. We mourn and we ask you to forgive us. We also ask you to fill us with your spirit and to empower us to repent. Lord, we thank you that you desire to help us to do just that. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Let's stand together. This closing song, it's a, a prayer of repentance. And uh, I would encourage you, if there's some any point at all that you're feeling convicted of, just to take that to the Lord right now and ask his forgiveness and receive it as well.